for our time of prayer, and it uh, was a, a wonderful time to hear the thoughts and remembrances that we all had. Our message today and the passage today is about not looking back, but looking forward. And in the bulletin, uh, the title is To Plan or Not to Plan, That is the Question. So wanting to have something to say about planning, I did what any modern lazy researcher would do. I went to Wikipedia. And Wikipedia has a definition of planning as follows. Planning, also called foresight, forethought, is the process of thinking about and organizing the activities required to achieve a desired goal. It goes on to say that planning involves the creation and maintenance of a plan. As such, planning is a fundamental property of intelligent behavior. This thought process is essential to the creation and refinement of a plan, or the integration of it with other plans. That is, it combines forecasting of developments with the preparation of scenarios of how to react to them. And put a little more simply, the New World Dictionary defines planning as developing a detailed scheme, method, etc., for attaining an objective. So, what are some types of planning that we experience in our lives? That's not a rhetorical question, that's an actual question. What's that? All right, moving, planning for a move. Family planning. Financial planning. Okay, planning your, your career, your future. Career planning? Meal planning, right? We've got to plan menus and or not. Meal planning or drive-through. What about some others? Wedding planning. You guys are coming up with good ones that I hadn't written down here. What's that? Vacation planning. Work planning. Let's say there's something that some teachers are doing right now, probably. Lesson planning. Remember lesson planning? There's retirement planning, business planning. A big one is strategic planning. Zach, I thought for sure you'd come up with that one. You don't want to think about it. Planning is a natural thing that we do in many areas of our lives. In today's passage, James encounters some business people, some merchants, who are describing their plans, and he takes exception to their methodology. Let's see what James has to say, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor 
that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So it's clear that he's taking exception to the methodology, at least, that these business people or merchants have utilized to come up with their plan. I think the context of this passage follows up on one of the points that Joe mentioned in the earlier part of chapter 4 last week, and that is humility. Back in verse 6, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But here, in contrast to that, in verse 16, he says, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Boastful arrogance. I can tell you from my experience, boastful arrogant is what plays well in the world system in the financial arena. Being able to convince others that you that what you say will happen, your plan, will be in fact what will happen. In fact, I think we like following leaders who can convince us of the certainty of their plans. But it seems like James takes exception to that. But is James saying that we should not plan as Christians? We shouldn't do wedding planning, meal planning, retirement planning, financial planning, vacation planning, the various kinds of plannings that we talked, that, that we mentioned? I think not. I think he's giving a negative example here to show what is the opposite of the kind of humility that he's calling for in the greater part of chapter 4. But I also don't think he's giving us a surefire way to plan here. That is simply putting on the front of anything that we want to say, well, if the Lord wills, and then put our plan out. See, in the kingdom of God, it's about what happens on the inside. That's the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not simply what we say or do, but most of our sin is the attitude and the motives we have for doing or saying what we do or say. One commentator on today's passage had the following to say, James would be the last man to condemn a reasonable foresight. He well knew that we must look forward must provide, must lay plans for the future. It is not this that he condemns, but the thing which he visits with the severity of his denunciation is the practical leaving of God out of his own world and the practical taking of the management of affairs into our own hands, which is implied in all confident reckoning upon the continuation of life. Although James is not directly referencing it, I'm sure he was thinking about Proverbs 27.1, which says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know 
what a day may bring forth. Well, if James isn't giving us a scheme for how to plan, might there be an example elsewhere in Scripture of how to go about formulating a direction to pursue that may give us a hint of how we are to plan as citizens in the kingdom of God? I'd like to take a look at Nehemiah, the governor of Jerusalem, who formulated and executed a plan to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. As we will see, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia in the mid-400s BC. As a cupbearer to the king, he was in a key position in the king's court. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Nehemiah, beginning in chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Shizlev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. Shizlev, by the way, is the ninth month in the Jewish calendar. That Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. He was really anxious to get news about what was going on with the people and the land in Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. This is devastating news to him. The people are in distress and the land is in shambles. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what was Nehemiah's first reaction to this devastating news? Was he a confident planner who said, I know how to fix this problem. I'll take so many men with this much equipment, and we will go back and we will restore Jerusalem to where it was before the fall. No, his reaction was to weep and to mourn for days. And then after he finished weeping and mourning, he fasted and he prayed. Why do you think he fasted and prayed? I think it was because he needed to hear the voice of God concerning this devastating news. Fasting and praying are two of the spiritual disciplines, practices that help us develop intimacy with God so we can hear the voice of God or be attentive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We want to develop this kind of intimacy with God so we can be like Peter in Matthew 16, 18, where he answers Jesus' question about, who do you think I am? You don't need to go there, but I'll briefly read from you the passage. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others 
Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church is built on this truth, that we are to seek the wisdom of God and not just rely on the wisdom of our flesh. How do we get there? We get there by spending time with the Lord, investing in the relationship. And we call that practicing the spiritual disciplines. Our elders are currently studying a series of books, which I can highly recommend to you if you have an interest in developing your ability to hear the voice of God. There are three books in the series. I have two of them here with me today. They're by an author by the name of James Bryant Smith. The first one is called The Good and Beautiful God, The subtitle is, Falling in Love with the God that Jesus Knows. The second book that we're currently studying is called The Good and Beautiful Life, Putting on the Character of Christ. These two books have in them weekly exercises that we practice that are, spiritual, that are different kinds of spiritual dif- disciplines gives you the ability to have a freshness to spending time with the Lord. So each week you have an opportunity to practice one of a variety of spiritual disciplines that when pursued help us to hear the voice of God in the midst of our hectic and overloaded lives. And I can tell you that I make this recommendation and present this along with the elders as flawed sojourners in the pursuit of being able to hear the voice of God in the midst of hectic and overloaded lives and not as experts or people who have completed that journey. Well now let's get back to the passage in Nehemiah and listen to Nehemiah's prayer because I think there's more that we can learn from Nehemiah here on planning. Beginning in verse 5, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. See, he starts his prayer with praise and adoration. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. So after praise and adoration, he moves on to confession. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. He continues 
in confession. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you among the people. Going on in verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. He makes a part of his prayer, praying back the words of God, in this point referencing Deuteronomy 30, 2 and 3. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delights to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. By the way, this cupbearer position is a very trusted position in the court of the king. The king had to trust that his cupbearer would prevent him from being poisoned by someone poisoning the wine. It was an honorable and privileged position and there was great intimacy that developed between the king and his various cupbearers. And so Nehemiah was a trusted servant with access to real power in the king. So we see this cupbearer's initial reaction to this troubling news about the remnant in Jerusalem. He's not like the business people in James, boasting and arrogant, overly confident in himself, and leaving no room for God, but relying solely on himself. Instead, he cries and mourns. Then he fasts and prays, experiencing two of the spiritual disciplines. He spends time with the Lord in order to hear the Lord's voice about how he should address the ruins in Jerusalem of both people and the land. Then his prayer begins with adoring God. Then he confesses sin. He repeats God's word in the prayer. And finally, his simple request is for success and compassion before the king. He has no elements in his plans yet that he's presented to God. He's reaching out, hoping to hear from the voice of God. Or at least if he does have elements in his plan, he does not lay them out in his prayer. By the way, if you notice, when we do congregational prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, one of the reasons that we use that as a way of practicing prayer is that all of the elements that we see in this prayer of Nehemiah are contained in the prayers that we do out of the Book of Common Prayer. There's adoration and praise, there's thanksgiving, there's confession, and there's supplication, as well as praying back the words of God to him. So now that we see initially what Nehemiah did, let's read on in chapter 2 to see how things worked out for him and if he ever did come to a plan by exercising spiritual disciplines. Let's read on in chapter 2 to see the result. Beginning in verse 1, And it came about in the month Nisan, 
This is the first month of the Jewish calendar in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So this is the month Nisan that we're talking about now. So this is four months later. It was the ninth month of the year that he found out about the ruins and the people being in shambles. It's now four months, and he still hasn't made his move. That's how long he fasted and prayed, how long he practiced spiritual disciplines, how long he waited to hear the voice of God to illumine his past. He was a very patient man. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Even after four months, this humble man, instead of being boastful and arrogant, is in fact willing to admit that he's still afraid. In verse 3, I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Even after four months of fasting and praying, the critical moment comes where the Lord opens the opportunity for him and his reaction is to pray. Now, I'm sure it was a brief prayer, but I think even a brief prayer that follows a long time of praying for something brings back all that we need in the confidence of having heard the voice of the Lord. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. He continues in his humble manner, in contrast to the boastful, arrogant merchants of the James passage. In verse 6, Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. He finally reveals that he has formulated a plan, but it was four months in the making and was dependent on fasting and praying over that period of time so he could hear the voice of the Lord and be walking in the steps that the Lord had illumined for him. He continues in verse 7, And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. He reveals more about the plan, but remains humble and dependent on God. By the sovereignty of God, Artaxerxes' heart was open to the request 
from his trusted servant, and he granted Nehemiah everything that he needed for his plan. So getting back to the passage of today and what we glean from God's word, here are a few summarizing points. Christians can plan. We just need to recognize and allow for God's sovereignty over everything that we do. We're going to plan in a way that is humble and not boastful and arrogant. Submitting our planning to the Lord is a wise way to pursue our future. We should allow room for the voice of God to speak into our plans. We can do this by practicing spiritual disciplines like fasting and praying and so developing a greater intimacy in our relationship with God. By the way, and BJ's not here, but she, in our planning time that we had a couple of months ago, was interested in how I was going to be able to tie this last sentence in, which seems to be completely out of context. That's verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Uh, From what I could find from gleaning together things from various commentaries, I think what James is referring to here is that it's not that it's just unwise to leave God out of our plans. It's actually sin to do that. And that's what I think that last sentence adds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, We submit our entire being to your sovereignty. We confess that there are many areas of our lives where we leave you out. We are too boastful and arrogant about the fruits of our flesh, and we need to humble ourselves before you. Help us to spend more time with you, developing our relationship and fighting off the busyness of our hectic lives. We desire to hear your voice and know that you are willing to speak in our lives if we will only hear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. for the Lord He inclined and heard my cry He brought me up out of the pit out of the miry clay I will sing sing a new song I will sing sing a new song You set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. Many will see, many will see and hear. I will sing, sing a new song. 
I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? Sing this song.